in introducing Jim uh, Hansen's Muppets. Before they start, I want you to show, I want to show you rather, this little box, which they gave me as a present. It contains, you won't believe this, but it's true, an instant rock and roll group. They just take it out of the box, you put it down here, and you stand pat. And it works. Sixteen ninety seven Broadway, between West fifty third and West fifty fourth, finished construction in nineteen twenty seven. Thirteen story brick and terracotta office building with a theater serving as its ground floor. Designed by Herbert Crap, yes, Crap, but with a K and two P's, and built by theater manager and producer Arthur Hammerstein. The Hammerstein Theater sits in the heart of Manhattan's theater district. Wikipedia describes the interior as neo-Gothic, with pointed arch-stained glass windows. The first play ever hosted there co-starred an actor named Archie Leach, who would later change his name to Cary Grant and never be heard from again. After Hammerstein went bankrupt in 1931, the venue changed ownership, names, and purposes several times. It was the Manhattan Theater, and then it was Billy Rose's Music Hall. It was a nightclub for a while, and then a CBS radio broadcasting studio. During that time, it changed its name to Radio Theater No. 3, and then CBS Radio Playhouse. In 1950, it became CBS TV Studio 50, embracing America's new favorite form of in-home entertainment. Edward Vincent Sullivan was born in Harlem in 1901, and would die in Manhattan 73 years later, because the dude was a New Yorker through and through. Growing up, he was a talented baseball player, played catcher, and led his high school team as its captain to multiple championships. New York baseball was then fully integrated, and he thought nothing of playing and socializing with players of color. This would stick with him, nurturing, according to Sullivan, my instinctive antagonism to any theory that a Negro wasn't a worthy opponent or was an inferior person. Ed's first career was as a newspaper man, reporting sports for rags like the New York Evening Mail and the Philadelphia Bulletin. When the legendary Walter Winchell left one job for another, leaving an opening, Sullivan was made a Broadway columnist. After years of covering the news and gossip for The Great White Way, he became a highly influential star maker, highlighting new shows and performers, his power rivaling the great Winchell himself. In 1948, Sullivan was hired to host a weekly Sunday night variety show, Toast of the Town. After five years broadcasting from the Maxine Elliott Theater on West 39th, the show, now called The Ed Sullivan Show, moved to 1697 Broadway and set up their stage in TV Studio 50. Very quickly, Studio 50 would be renamed The Ed Sullivan Theater and would one day become the home of Late Night, both with David Letterman and Stephen Colbert. The early Ed Sullivan shows received terrible reviews, and the critics were savage when it came to its host. A powerful syndicated columnist assumed that Sullivan got where he is not by having a personality, but by having no personality. Ed's response letter to this was, Dear Miss Van Horn, You bitch. Sincerely, Ed Sullivan. But she wasn't wrong. Ed had a fairly low charisma score. He wasn't an actor. 
He wasn't very funny. He was awkward, stiff, with bad posture. He had heavy bags under his bulging eyes and a funny, stilted way of talking that led him to pronounce certain words strangely. Time Magazine once asked, what exactly is Ed Sullivan's talent? His talent, it turned out, was introducing America to the talent of others. He hosted two of Elvis Presley's first television appearances. Although Ed was reluctant at first because of the singer's notoriously lurid hip gyrations. Most famously, the four mop-topped young men from Liverpool, whom Sullivan had, by chance, seen arriving at Heathrow Airport after a trip abroad. He witnessed the reaction from all the young people, the screams, the tears, the fervor, and realized it was Elvis all over again. The Ed Sullivan Show signed the Beatles for three consecutive episodes. The rest is, well, you know. Ladies and gentlemen... The Dave Clark Five, The Animals, The Beach Boys, Creedence Clearwater Revival, Janis Joplin, The Rolling Stones, The Doors, The Mamas and the Papas, and a 13-year-old violin prodigy named Itzhak Perlman would also perform on the show, many making their television debuts. Sullivan was also pretty cool when it came to artists of color. Throughout the years, he would feature black talents, presenting them to white America, and ignore any criticism thrown his way by the ignorant. Guests included the Supremes, Louis Armstrong, Harry Belafonte, Diane Carroll, Ray Charles, Count Basie, Bo Diddley, Ella Fitzgerald, Lena Horne, The Jackson Five, Lou Rawls, Nina Simone, Sly and the Family Stone, Dion Warwick, Stevie Wonder, and many more. I was talking to young Jim Brown, James Brown. He was telling me that uh, his rhythm and blues uh, are rooted in Southern gospel singing. Now, he's a Southerner, of course. He was born in Augusta, Georgia, where he worked on a farm, picked cotton, worked in a coal yard, and always sang his songs. So we are delighted to present James Brown on our stage on this show. So let's have a fine welcome for a very fine talent. The most important thing, Sullivan said later, is that we've put on everything but bigotry. When the show first started in 48, I had a meeting with the sponsors. There were some Southern dealers present, and they asked me if I intended to put Negroes on. I said yes. They said I shouldn't, but I convinced them I wasn't going to change my mind. So Sullivan, despite his ill-fitting suits and almost Uncle Fester-like demeanor, seemed to be a pretty groovy cat, at least by mid-20th century standards. Chad, this is all really interesting, but what does this have to do with the Muppets? I'm getting there, Nick. Good grief. Between 1966 and 1971, Jim Henson and the Muppets made 25 appearances on The Ed Sullivan Show, not including The Great Santa Claus Switch, which we'll talk about next week. On their first appearance, September 18th, 1966, Sullivan introduced the act as Jim uh, Newsom's Puppets. Not the best start, but the relationship would continue, and the Muppets would become a highlight of the show's legendary run, slightly behind Elvis and those pesky Beatles, I guess. Muppets Magic from the Ed Sullivan Show, a collection of most of the Muppet appearances, was released on DVD in 2003. Let's take a look at it. Here are the Muppets who call themselves puppets. Hi-ho, Chad here. The goal of this podcast is to watch nearly everything that Jim Henson and the Muppets have ever made. Why nearly? Well, as we've discussed, some things just aren't available. 
either because they don't exist, like episodes of Sam and Friends, or because they're just not out there, but are maybe in archives or collections or museums. If the United States ever gets its Snarfratch Corundred together, hopefully I'll be able to get to some of these museums and archives and I'll be able to report back to you on that stuff. So hopefully I still plan on watching those things. The second reason why almost everything is we can't overcome the insurmountable, i.e. 51 years of Sesame Street. It would take us forever to do it. It's way too much. It would slow down the entire show. Everyone would stop listening and I don't want to do it. The third category are things that We're watching, but we're not talking about. Because during the 60s and 70s, the Muppets were still pretty mercenary. They stopped doing commercials in 1969, but that didn't stop them from doing talk shows and variety shows and making appearances all over the place. Through the main podcast, what we're trying to give you is a modest biography of Jim Henson told through his major works. Along the way, here and there, we're going to mention things that he did here and did there, but there's not time to talk about them on the main show. So I had the idea that maybe for like bonus episodes, I don't know how regular these will be, but they won't be uncommon. I have a lot of ideas for them. Before we get started, I would like to say that that a lot of the information for this episode I found on either Wikipedia or the Muppet Wiki. So consider their sources my sources for this episode. Now, I've double-checked things and cross-checked things and found new stuff, but just so you know, a lot of this stuff I got online. Tonight, I'm going to talk about The Ed Sullivan Show. What I'm going to do is I have my Muppets Magic DVD. Yes, I actually own the DVD. And I'm going to queue it up. And what's going to happen is I'm going to pause the recording. I'm going to watch the Ed Sullivan bit. Then I'll come back on here and I'll talk about it. And then I'll go back and forth. If you go to lunaticdaring.com and go to our video resources and click on The Ed Sullivan Show, it will take you to a playlist of all of the ones that are on YouTube. If you want to follow along. We're going to start at the beginning. It's a good place to start. September 18th, 1966, the debut of The Muppets on The Ed Sullivan Show, with a little bit called Rock and Roll Monster. All right, right off the bat, I have a nit to pick, and I'm going to go ahead and do it. In 1966, when this debuted, Ed Sullivan, not known to be the most eloquent speaker, introduced the act as Jim uh, Newsom's puppets. Now, that's awesome. But on this DVD release, they have overdubbed Ed Sullivan with Ed Sullivan saying, Jim uh, Hanson's Muppets. And I would like to say, release the Newsome cut. I would like to see the original, please. Anyway, rock and roll monster. Um, Sullivan takes this little box and he puts it on a stage and what grows out of the box inevitably is a three-headed monster. But they're, they're not just a three-headed monster. They're a three-headed monster rock and roll band. They spring to life one at a time from this blob of fur with their instruments. The three heads are being performed by Henson, Oz, and Jerry Nelson. Gotta be real sweaty in there. Like, they're right on top of each other. The song is called Rocket To Me by The Brothers. That's B-R-U-T-H-E-R-S. They were a New York State garage band from the 60s that uh, I believe they were signed with RCA. They put out a couple singles. This was not one of them, though. I have found conflicting reports, but this is the only known recording of Rocket to Me by the Brothers. Some say that this was an unused track by them, because their big hit, Bad Way to Go, was also 1966. And then I also read another source that said the song was written for Henson and the Muppets to be on Ed Sullivan. 
but it's a cool 60s rock song and these puppets are just rocking along to it and it's a really cool looking monster as it unfolds and then as the song ends it folds back in on itself back into the little box and then a character known as Sourbird who I think was from like the Crown Royal commercials and later would show up on Sesame Street just as like bird guy and he comes out and he eats the box and that's uh that's the end of it it's a nice first appearance for the Muppets so next up on the DVD is I Feel Pretty from April 30th, 1967, which really upsets me because that means this DVD is not going in chronological order, but we'll power through. Once there was a girl named Amanda. Now Amanda was, well, she was not spectacularly beautiful. Oh boy. So with I Feel Pretty, it's not really, they're not singing the song from West Side Story. It's kind of a musical score underneath it, but it's about a puppet named Amanda who is ugly. It's funny, it's narrated by Jerry Jewell. He's telling it like this is some weird fairy tale. And so Amanda's an ugly puppet and the narrator walks us through how she becomes beautiful. What's clever about it, Amanda literally molds her face as a puppet to become more beautiful. She shrinks her nose down with her hand. She pumps herself up so that she's long and skinny. You know, uh, she gives herself eyes and a mouth and then she's pretty. This is a variation on a bit that we have seen and we're gonna see in other stuff. They will do this a lot with the Southern Colonel character, where they'll break the fourth wall in a way and show you that the puppets are really just pieces. And when they're put together in the right way, they create different characters. Anyway, this one's okay. She makes herself feel pretty. She meets a guy named Conrad Love and is voiced by Jim Henson at his most pompous. I am Conrad Love. And you, Amanda, are spectacularly beautiful. And then they hug and... I guess that undoes all the things she did to make herself pretty and she's ugly again. And then the narrator comes in and the narrator is also ugly in the same way that Amanda is and says, uh, I like her how she is or whatever. It's fine. I don't, I don't love this one, honestly. I actually think it's kind of boring. Also notable in this one, though, is uh, Jim comes out at the end of it. On several of these, you're going to see this where Jim comes out and shakes Ed's hand at the end of the sketch. He's wearing like a brown sweater and he's got his, be- his beard's pretty tight. It's uh, his beard looking pretty good this time around. And he comes out and gives Ed a handshake. He always seems uh, a little awkward about it, but as time goes on, he gets more comfortable. Next up, from November 30th, 1969, so again, out of order, comes a classic that we all know, Manamana. Here's the thing about Manamana. The song actually comes from a Swedish Mondo film, which is kind of a exploitative documentary, usually about sex, called Svezia, or... Sweden, heaven, and hell. If anyone is seriously interested, from a scholastic point of view, he can pay the modest sum of one krona and visit the sex shop, a sort of national library of pornography. Shelf after shelf stacked with publications in all languages, banned in other countries of the world. The story is that Jim and Frank saw this movie. You have to remember there were times in the 60s and 70s where so-called erotic films were mainstream entertainment for people to go see. They went and saw this film and... And Frank walked away with, you know, some thoughts about it. And Jim came away with... If the Salome Club is the tired face of Sweden, a society which has sacrificed so much to the paganism of physical life, here is the other, the brighter side of the coin. It 
was first performed on Sesame Street and uh, with different characters. I believe this time on Sullivan is the first time where you get actually Menomina, the character, and the Snoths, the pink creatures with the little squishy mouths. If you haven't seen Menomina, I don't know what to tell you. You should go watch it right now, any version of it. It is the Muppet sketch. This one's a little lower energy, I'd say, than the Muppet Show version or even the Sesame Street version. Jim seems to be a little more low-key. There's a couple beats in it that aren't in that aren't in other versions. Just like all the versions are, are really the same, but they have different beats here or there. One funny thing is there is when Womanomena, you know, goes deep into the background away from the snows. In this one, you can see Jim's arm and then a little bit of his head pop up in the frame, which I thought was cute. What am I going to say, man? It's the best, right? Everybody, everybody knows Menomino. And this is the second time and the first time that it was done with these puppets. Frank Oz with a hand in each snooth and Jim Henson doing Menomino in perfect harmony. And it's only going to get better. Let's see. What's the next one the disc is telling me? A Change of Face, March 30th, 1969. So A Change of Face is literally the Southern Colonel bit. This was done on the Muppets on Puppets documentary. It's in the same family of sketches as I Feel Pretty. And this one stars the Southern Colonel character. And he's on stage with a guy named Rex Robbins, who's a character actor. It looks like he did a lot on the stage. To me, the best credits I can find for him is he was in the movie version of the musical, 1776. And apparently his last film was he had a tiny bit in the Royal Tannenbaums. But Rex Robbins was, you know, he's a character actor. And so he's on stage with the, the Southern Colonel. Jim as the Southern Colonel and Frank, it's a live hand puppet, so Frank's got the right hand. And Rex is trading out pieces of the puppet face. And as the faces change, Jim changes the voice and the character. First, he starts off as this old man character. I think I know what your trouble is. No, you don't know. Yes, I think I do. He don't know. Yes, you've let yourself get into a rut. He did know. Yes. Then they take all of his stuff off and he's just down to basically some eyes and he looks really young like a baby and so Jim gives him a young voice. Then they put some hair and sunglasses on him and Jim makes him talk like a hippie. Then they take that off and they move his eyes up on his on his face and he looks more erudite. He looks like a, a poet or a scholar and Jim tells a little poem about a flower. Right? And then they put some, eye, some different eyes on him, some mean looking eyes and a hat and all of a sudden he's a gangster. I think you're a lousy, cheap, two-bit, no-good, sawbones doctor. And then they flip the eyes upside down, and he turns into a sad sack drunk, asking for some change for a bottle of Ripple. Then they strip everything off of him, and he takes two little black dots, two little beady eyes, and he puts them way up on there. The puppet starts to look around kind of weird, and then just goes, Meep, meep. Because it looks like an alien. What strange heads you earth creatures have. It is a showcase for both the performances and the actual design of the Muppets and the thought and art that goes into giving them character just from where you place the elements of their face. The crew does come out to shake Ed's hand, including Frank, who comes out in glasses and a really sweet stash. Next up, according to the DVD at least, is Monster Eats Machine, October 8th, 1967. This is a recorded analytic program readout to be utilized by engineering personnel exclusively. We will start with a physical description of the external components already. Let us begin. So, Monster Eats Machine, or Coffee Break Machine, I think, is it sometimes called? Star is a cookie monster, although he's not cookie monster yet. He's just a monster that likes to eat things. And a computer that talks. This 
sketch was originally created for uh, IBM, for IBM meeting films that Muppets Inc. made back in the 60s. This here on Sullivan wouldn't be the last time we see it either. But so there's a, a talking machine voiced by Jim and I'm just going to call him Cookie Monster. <laughs> and Cookie Monster uh, proceeds to eat it a piece at a time while it talks. And as it talks, it's describing the part that he's eating. With a 301 electromicrometer, mm-hmm. these capacitators are connected into the dual exhaust intake valve. Mm-hmm. The quantum polarization of the energy transfer involved herein results in the emission of a small amount of gaseous methane. And oftentimes it mentions how expensive that part is, and Cookie just kind of enjoys that. There's a, there's a funny bit as he's eating it a piece at a time and a piece at a time that he gets to a little part, and right as he's about to eat it, the thing tells him it's only worth about 35 cents. So he shrugs and <laughs> tosses it over his shoulder. He only wants the expensive stuff. And then finally, Cookie gets down to the, this little talking box with uh, flapping lips from which Jim Henson's voice is coming. And he shoves that in his mouth too and swallows it. And then it keeps talking <laughs> uh, from inside of him. And this is how it's different from the original IBM film. <laughs> the, the voice says, Nothing can keep this machine from performing its primary function, which is to be the most powerful exploding device known to man. Funny stuff. Christmas Reindeers that aired, shockingly, December 22nd, 1968. A bunch of reindeers hanging out. It's Christmas Eve and it hasn't snowed yet. And they're worried about trying to figure out how to make it snow because there can't be Christmas without snow. And they end up doing a reindeer snow dance at the end to summon the snow. And, and it works. It's mostly just an excuse for some pretty bad, but like Muppet bad jokes. I refer to the fact that it's only three days till Christmas and it hadn't snowed yet. Oh, yeah? Hey, it hasn't snowed yet. That's serious. Yeah, snow joke. That's <laughs> <laughs> beautiful. Company, turn hot. Now listen, you branch brains. If there's no snow, we won't be able to deliver the presents on Christmas Eve. How about we just mail them? Hey, that's that's nice. Yeah, yeah, why not? Hey, hey, I got an idea. Yeah? Well, if there isn't any snow, maybe we could get some snow and spread it around. What snow? Wait a minute. Don't tell me. Nothing snow. What snow with you? Yeah. Like some of these jokes are going to come back. Some of these kind of one-liners are going to come back. It's not a spectacular piece. I think I hear, obviously, I hear Jim's voice in there, but I know I heard Jerry Nelson's as well. It's fine. It's not one of my favorites, but it's fine. Next up is Scalop Falop from November 24th, 1968. I, I like this one. You guys, the like alien looking dude in kind of a bubbling cauldron almost. And he pops up and he says, and then another one pops up and says, then another one pops up and says, and they don't like that. So the one that says, is like chasing the one that says, I don't know what the point is, (laughs) but it's funny. And uh, of course, when they, uh, when uh, one shoots another, it's basically like a, they've, they've got these snozzes, right? And so like a, it's almost like a fire extinguisher shooting out of their snozz, that kind of, kind of classic Muppet kind of violence, you know, where it's just a puff of like smoke or foam. And eventually, of course, while the is bullying the, eventually the gets the best of, and uh, we get our ending where the bully gets his comeuppance, because that's how these things end. So next up, it looks like we're going to get Big Bird's Dance, December 14th, 1969. So I don't really care for this one, Big Bird's Dance. It's just what it is, right? It's Big Bird dancing along to The Minuet of the Robots by Jean-Jacques Perry. 
And he, he dances around and then there are some women in like sweaters and stuff that are like bird watching and they're following him around and they're dancing kind of. The only thing really interesting about this is Carol Spinney is not in the suit. Daniel Segrin is. Uh, this was one of the times where Daniel Segrin took over because Carol Spinney wasn't as comfortable doing the dancing. But if you watch it also, Big Bird doesn't talk. <laughs> and not in the sketch, which doesn't require him to, but also then afterwards when he comes over to meet Ed Sullivan, he doesn't speak because Carol Spinney wasn't there. It's definitely my least favorite. It's not even funny. It's just here to promote Sesame Street. This is December 1969. Sesame Street is on the air. So this is just, hey, let's get Big Bird on the show. Next up is a classic, uh, The Art of Visual Thinking. And this one aired on October 2nd, 1966. It's impressive and it, it's, it's, a, it's a classic Muppet bit. This version is just like the one that was on Sam and Friends and Sesame Street, except for this one uses Grump the character of Grump as uh, the guy who's trying to visual think. And in this case, instead of Harry the hipster, it's actually Kermit himself, which makes sense, I guess. He learned from Harry and he comes in and he's the one that can do the jazz and all that stuff. Just, just go back to us talking about visual thinking in the first episode. It's pretty much the same bit with the better animation and better graphics, but I've just never been a huge fan of it. I, I get what's innovative about it. I get what's cool about it. I get what's attractive about it, but I don't find it all that entertaining. Now we're going to watch May 11th, 1969, Happy Girl Meets a Monster. So this one's known as like Happy Girl Meets a Monster or Beautiful Day. It's a cute one. It's about there's a little girl and there's a monster. Now, this isn't the first time they had done it. They had already done it on the Today Show and the Tonight Show. Uh, so this Sullivan performance, I think, is like its third time. But you have this little girl, little blonde girl, and you have this blue monster Muppet, who after this will be called Beautiful Day Monster because of this skit. I don't think he ever gets another name, which is kind of silly. Then the monster only speaks in like ugly syllables, you know, like Snarfratch Carundridge. She starts talking about how nice it is and he makes it rain. And she starts talking about how nice the rain is. So he makes the rain stop. And then she says the rain makes the flowers grow when she has a pot with a flower in it. And he eats the flower. <laughs> and even throws away the pot. And then she notices there's beautiful birdies up in the trees. And he pulls out, he, Wilkins and kind of Wilkins and Wilkins style, he pulls out a gun and obviously off screen, but bang, there goes the bird. So she turns it around on him and she talks about how awful he is, how perfectly, exceptionally, beautifully awful he is. I'm sure that you've tried all your life to be perfectly awful, working and working year after year just to be as bad as possible. And now all your toil and self-sacrifice has made you a success. You set yourself a goal and you have succeeded. Perfection is a beautiful goal to strive for. You should be congratulated. Yes, you're so awful that it's truly beautiful. You're a perfect example of beautiful awfulness. And as she's telling him that, right, uh, he's shrinking. And that, that's the real innovative part of this is that he's shrinking. Now, I watched it a couple times and I can't 100% figure it out. But I think in the monster's hands are hidden extra faces for the monster. So as she is telling him all the beautiful things about him and he's shrinking, you'll see Jim kind of pulls the puppet together and then a smaller head pops out that used to be an arm. And they do this like twice. And, and so it's, it's really, I haven't been able to find any more detail about it, but it's a really tricky piece of work back there to make this monster in front of an alive audience shrink. When it gets down to its smallest bit at the end, <laughs> before she hits him with a fly swatter, it cuts away to the little girl and then back to the little version of the monster. I don't know. 
Maybe there was a mistake on set at the time, but the cut definitely seems to be hiding the last transition to the smallest monster. So I don't know how that was done in front of a live studio audience, unless it's just kind of like, hey, uh, don't tell anybody about this. And uh, yeah, we'll see that monster again. And a lot of these pieces come back on The Muppet Show, so I don't want to keep talking about that. But man, this sketch is funny, but it's way funnier with Madeline Kahn in it, because everything is funnier with Madeline Kahn in it. Next up is The Glutton from February 21st, 1971. I believe this is the last appearance of the Muppets on The Ed Sullivan Show. I mean, the show ended in 71. I think this is the last chronological appearance. But for some reason, it's in the middle of this DVD. So here we go. The Glutton is a weird one, man. Kind of reminds me of the Mr. Creosote bit from Monty Python's Meaning of Life. It's only a waffer thing. There's a really big, fat dude, a glutton, who is... Uh, a live hand puppet, so he's operated by Jim in the head and, and, again, Frank doing the right arm. Like, he's just this fat guy, and he's got a bunch of food on the table, and he just eats to this music by Joe Raposo. And at the end, he tries to crack open a little nut, and then the little nut turns out to be sentient, and the nut shrinks him down, and then another version of himself comes along and eats the little version of himself. The ending is kind of convoluted and not very funny. But the way he was eating the food, there's even a stick of celery. It reminded me of the Hunger Is episode of Salmon Friends, where Yorick is just filling his face full of stuff while listening to spoken word jazz. After it's over, Jim and Frank come out to see Ed, and of course, the glutton tries to eat Ed's hand. You know, they do a little, they do a little shtick. Next up is by far my favorite. February 18th, 1968. Business, business business, business. All right, so I'm going to try to walk you through this one. There are these little tube-like creatures. Let's just call them kind of uncircumcised anemones. They pop up into the screen and they say, business, business, and just shouting out business terms. Long-term growth, increase in rent, potential inflationary increment, registered securities, money spent, compatible diversified options, land business, business. But then these little ones pop up. And they say, love, or beauty. It ends up kind of this war between the ones that are going business, business, and the one that are, ones that are asking for peace and brotherhood and love and all these things. Romance, profit, friendship, income, beauty, money, joy, cash, income, me, profit, brotherhood, business, tenderness, business. So finally it comes to a confrontation and the business, business ones shoot again with those kind of fire extinguisher heads. They shoot the little guys, but they miss. And the little guys who are all about friendship, love, peace, they fire back and they blow the business, business guys out of the screen. Then though, is the kicker. Peace, love, brotherhood, joy guys start singing. Peace, success, victory, opportunity, comfort, security. Benefits, growth, wealth, diversity. Dividends, profit, capital, economy, business, 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 business. Man, I love this sketch. It's so cynical. <laughs> it's so cynical, but oh, the, the end with the, oh, so good. By far my favorite of the bunch. By far. This next one, though, is definitely not one of my favorites. It's a Santa Claus routine with Arthur Godfrey from Christmas Eve, 1967. I'm going to watch it, and then I'm going to Google Arthur Godfrey and figure out who he is. Okay, I looked it up, and Arthur Godfrey 
uh, was a, a broadcaster, a TV guy. He played the ukulele, but he also had a TV show called Arthur Godfrey and His Friends that ran from 1949 to 1959. And apparently Jim and Jane Henson, i.e. Muppets Inc., i.e. Salmon Friends, made an appearance on that show. I'm not sure it's available, but I'll go looking for it. Godfrey plays Santa Claus and uh, he's talking about the good little girls and boys and stuff. And these monsters show up to steal his packages. And then he kind of gets to know the monsters and tells them, you can't steal this stuff. I'm giving it to you. I'm Santa Claus. And they're kind of like, well, you can't give it to us. And he's like, I'm Santa Claus. And then they sing a song together. So the monsters are Thudge, Scudge, Snork and Snork, which are kind of the same creature, and Gleep. All of these monsters would appear on Sesame Street or The Muppet Show or something. You know, you're not going to let these things go to waste. They're just cool monsters. But Gleep, who is in this controlled by Frank Oz, is the first puppet of Grover. This is 1967. This is two years before Sesame Street. Three years, I think, until Grover would show up on that show. In this, he's darker. He's almost... He's not really blue, He's only, he's not, but he's not blue, he's not black, he's like a dark brown, it's hard to tell. But he definitely looks like Grover, doesn't act like him, he's not very nice. And he's voiced by Frank Oz. So that's the only notable thing about this. It's a little Christmas sketch, you know, like, it's, it's fine. February 5th, 1967, I've grown accustomed to her face. No different than the older versions of it. Kermit in a blonde wig, Yorick with a mask on. Kermit singing about growing accustomed to York's face, York eating the mask, York eating Kermit. We've already covered this sketch probably two or three times. A very classic Muppet sketch that they've been doing since the mid-50s. And we come to October 13th, 1968, the Monster Trash Can Dance. So this one's okay. There's a couple of, there's three trash cans and there's three parts of a monster, right? There's like his arms, his body, and his eyes. And he hides in the three pieces of the trash can. And then the little blonde girl, the same one, I think, from the uh, Beautiful Day video, comes in kind of singing a la la la. And then eventually the monster like keeps switching trash cans, the pieces of it. And eventually it becomes a monster. But then eventually it takes the form of a little boy that is attractive to the girl. And she comes up and they're kind of like, oh, hi. And then I think he, he gives her a kiss or a hug or something. And then poof, she turns into a monster. So it's basically the first Shrek movie. November 27th, 1966, Java. It was, they did it, they used this music a few times, they used this bit a few times. This particular one is definitely Jim and Frank. Uh, apparently Frank designed these little, they're just little tube, like, they look like uh, white slinkies with eyes, right? And there's a big one and it's dancing along to the song. And then a little one creeps in and the little one keeps trying to get in on the act and the big one pushes it away. And then the little one comes back in and the big one pushes it away. And then finally, the little one comes in, and they start dancing together, and they kind of get in sync. And then the little one raises up one of its little uh, tube legs and blows the big one away. <laughs> Again, it's more... So many of these these little concept pieces that they would do end in comeuppance for the bullies, right? It kind of reminds me of the Pixar short... Um, What's it called? For the birds. The Pixar short where all the birds are on the, on the, uh, the line, and they're all making fun of the big bird and then they all end up featherless or whatever because they're jerks. It's kind of the same thing with Java, but it's, it's a cool, cool little thing. They would do it again on Sullivan. I don't think the second performance is available to watch. I can't, at least I can't find it. So we'll count these as both. Great little bit of visual comedy from Frank and Jim. And now we got November 27th, 1966. I mean, it's just a spiffier version of Glowworm that he's been doing since the 50s. Kermit on the ledge eats a worm. 
eats another worm, and then eats another worm, but that worm ends up being the nose of a very big monster that eats him. We've gone through Glowworm before. You can be sure that I will not be using any audio clips from the next one. Octopus's Garden for March 1st, 1970. So this is a great one, but it is sung to a Beatles song. (laughs) So no clips. Basically, you've got an octopus who's real obnoxious, played by Frank Oz, and you've got like a diver who's, I, I think, played by Jim. And the, the diver, who's like a little kid, is trying to sing Octopus's Garden by the Beatles, you know, one of Ringo's songs. And the octopus the whole time is making these really bad sea-based puns. Jokes that you'll, that'll eventually be in like Finding Nemo, you know, like just for the halibut. Jokes like that. You know, friends like these who needs an enemies. Uh, and then at the end, the obnoxious octopus gets eaten by a giant clam. The end. It's actually one of uh, two times that they did the Beatles on Ed Sullivan which is kind of funny since, you know, the Beatles, Ed Sullivan, anyway. And so that's the end of the DVD. But there are a few more pieces out there that I'm going to pull up, and these are on YouTube. So I'm going to go on YouTube, and I'm going to pull up a a couple more that uh, didn't make it onto Mr. Sullivan's uh, DVD. First up is Monster Family, October 23rd, 1966. Dear sweet, lovable daddy! What? What? Will you teach me how to breathe fire? No, not until you're 16. Why not? You're too young to smoke. So this one's cute. It's just kind of a monster who's not that, I mean, he doesn't really look like King Plubus from Saturday Night Live, but, you know, there's a monster and his son, that Jim, Jim plays the monster and Jerry Jewell is actually doing the son. And it, basically the son is asking his father for advice on how to be a monster. Because when people look at a monster, all they see is a thing of slimy, scaly, hairy, loathsome ugliness. Oh, yes, yes. They they don't appreciate our good qualities. I thought those were our good qualities. Oh, no, son. Why, deep inside, a monster is just a heap of happiness. Ah. A blob of beauty and a lump of love. And it's, it's pretty cute. And then at the end, the mom comes in and the mom and the mom is played by Splurge from Hey Cinderella, the big giant blue thing. And I think it's uh, Frank Oz in the Splurge costume, which I'm sure he loved. But uh, that's Monster Family. Oh, your mother. Uh, There's another one. A flower of loveliness, a rainbow of beauty, a mountain of motherhood. Listen. I think I hear dear sweet gentle mommy now. Your mother, uh, we better get out of here. But I thought you said... Never mind what I said. Run for your life. Hi, mommy. Then we get one near and dear to my heart because of how much we loved uh, reviewing this earlier. But we have the Rolf and Jimmy Dean reunion. The Jimmy Dean show ended in 1966. And Rolf and Jimmy Dean came on to Sullivan to do one last round of quippy dialogue together again for the last time. Ralph. Ralph. Mm. Buddy. Now, just because we're here on the Ed Sullivan show, there's no reason for you to go out and dig up a bunch of corny jokes. You're forgetting something. We're buddies, and that's all that matters. Didn't you know that? Well, you know, you're too nice to be a person. You should have been a dog. Really? Yeah, yeah. You know, you're forgetting the one thing that we had going for us all through the years. You mean friendship? January 15th, 1967. 
Music Hath Charms. It was done on both the Ed Sullivan Show and the show called Hollywood Palace. I believe the clip online is from Hollywood Palace because the host is not Ed Sullivan. Sometimes Sullivan missed a show and he had a guest host, so it could be, but I don't recognize the host, so I think it's from Hollywood Palace. Either way, Kermit is playing the piano and he is, uh, there's a monster at the end of the piano and he plays, what's he plays? He plays like T for two and, um, oh, and you must have been a beautiful baby. And he's playing them to try to soothe the savage beast. And the monster keeps kind of getting closer to him and growing and expanding and all this stuff. Kermit does manage to keep the monster at bay. And then at the end, during the applause, after he's finished playing, his piano turns out to be a monster. And, you know, I mean, he eats him. Of course, of course, the piano eats him. According to the Muppet Wiki, it was also done on one of the Sesame Street test shows, which I have not seen. And then another one that's harder to find is, What Kind of Fool Am I? May 31st, 1970. All right, this one's pretty funny. Kermit is trying to play this song, What Kind of Fool Am I? Which I think is from a musical or something, I don't know. And he's trying to play the piano. He's in his tux. It's a very kind of, you know, schmaltzy love song. And then a puppet who we have previously seen known as Gleep. Although this is May of 1970 and Grover debuted as a character on Sesame Street at the beginning of season two. So I'm guessing that he was already Grover by now because he kind of talks like Grover and he's definitely played by Frank Oz. And basically all it is is he keeps interrupting Kermit, wanting to sing along, wanting to play a banjo along with him, acting dramatically. He's trying, he's, he just keeps in his enthusiasm for Kermit's performance of this beautiful song, he keeps annoying the hell out of him. Oz is chewing up the scenery in this one and it's hysterical. And then at the end, a bunch of um, random monsters that we've seen before come out, including another one that looks like Grover. So that could be the original Gleep puppet, but I'm not sure. The Wild String Quartet is from January 17th, 1971. It's uh, difficult to play a string quartet when there are only three of us. Uh, <laughs> Beagleman, our second violinist, hasn't shown up yet. Uh, We'll start without him. Yeah. Gentlemen, yeah. <clears throat> one and two and... So this is just like a proto-animal sketch. You'll have, you'll, we will see this idea with animal many times in the future, including, I think, one of the best Muppet musical moments ever. But you have this kind of hoity-toity string quartet. They're warming up. Grump is one of the members of the quartet. And there are these two other snooty-looking dudes. But they're missing one of their violinists. And they keep asking about him. And then their replacement violinist shows up. But it's actually Manamana. Hi guys. Hey, listen. I'm sorry I'm late. See, Beagleman couldn't make it. I come in. And... Hey, man. Hey, you know, whenever anybody sees this thing here, they know it represents me. You know why? What? Because it's my symbol. And instead of playing a violin, he plays drums. And of course, he's completely off. He plays. He wants to play jazz, man, and he's he's doing crazy things. He wants to swing. And by the end of it, the whole quartet is swinging along with his beat. We, we can't possibly play our music with you playing that drum. Oh, go ahead, man. I don't mind. They just get with it, though. Try to make it swing a little bit, you know. From the top. There you go. 
Miller up in the brawler, brawler, suet. Just imagine Animal doing this, and you've seen it before, but always very funny. First done on the Today Show, this was the second time they tried it. The only other one that I have, except for some of the repeats that I have listed, is uh, apparently they did a bit where a band sings Come Together by the Beatles, and it doesn't surprise me that that's not available anywhere because, you know, it's Beatles music. Although, Octopus's Garden is on YouTube. That's all the Ed Sullivan appearances. Next week, we're going to talk about the great Santa Claus switch, which is kind of an extra long Sullivan appearance. They actually take over like the whole hour. I hope this was at least somewhat informative <laughs> about these. Uh, this is a first time doing this bonus episode, so we'll see how it works out. Please check us out at Lunatic Daring on all your social media platforms and, of course, lunaticdaring.com, like I said. The Ed Sullivan Show was canceled in June of 1971. He wasn't happy with the decision and refused to do a final goodbye show, although he did return for a reunion show a couple years later. In late summer of 1974, he was diagnosed with an advanced case of esophageal cancer. His family chose to keep this a secret from him, despite doctors giving him a very short time to live. Thinking it was just his ulcers acting up again, Ed Sullivan died five weeks later, on October 13, 1974 two weeks after his 73rd birthday. You can see his star on the Walk of Fame on the north side of the 6100 block of Hollywood Boulevard, a long six or seven block walk from the Chinese Theater, with Lucille Ball, Gregory Peck, Rock Hudson, and Gene Kelly amongst his neighbors. A Feed of Lunatic Daring is written and produced by Chad J. Shonk and hosted by Chad J. Shonk and Nicholas Jackson. Music by Seth Podowitz. And a proud production of... Antithesis Audio.